0: Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Ken Collins, Professor of Historical Theology and Wesley Studies at Asbury Theological Seminary.
1: We Wesleyans um, have a ministry, not simply to people outside the church. We certainly have that, and, and Salvationists know that ministry very clearly. But we also have a ministry to those inside the church.
0: Welcome to Captain's Corner a podcast about community, mission, and culture. This podcast is a ministry of the Salvation Army of Tampa, where we exist because we believe every person can be the person God has called them to be. Please check us out at tampasa.org and give us a follow on Twitter at Sal Army tampa. And of course, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'd like to take a moment to recognize our sponsors for helping to make this podcast possible. Thank you to register to ringcom and to a very generous anonymous donor. We hope you guys enjoy the episode.
2: Well, welcome to Captain's Corner. This is Captain Andy Miller coming to you from Tampa, Florida. We're excited today to have on the podcast with us Dr. Ken Collins, who is a professor of historical theology at Asbury Theological Seminary and one of the most prolific writers and scholars of John Wesley and John Wesley's theology of our time. So it's a real honor to have Dr. Collins with us. Welcome.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for that uh, gracious welcome. I'm glad to be
2: here. And one of the interesting things about having uh, Dr. Collins on with us is many people know that I attended Asbury Theological Seminary and is a great part of my life, and I had many wonderful professors there who have helped shape my theology and, and ministry practice, but one of the things that I regret, there are there a are few regrets, is that I did not take a class with you, Dr. Collins. I'm sorry about that, I, but I've well, been I'm following sorry.
1: you. I'm <laughs> yes, I'm sorry our paths didn't cross
2: there. Um, so yeah, yeah. But I've been, um, but I have, I don't have all of your books, but I have a lot of them, and God's used them in my life to help understand Wesley. And we'll hope we we'll get into maybe at the end of this conversation to your, um, your books on evangelicalism as well. I think that'd be interesting. But before we get sure. go too far into your your study of Wesley, um, I just love to hear a little bit about your background, um, and what. Even your personal testimony of how you were led to Christ and led to ministry, particularly that as a seminary? I know that's a big question, but I'd love to just to hear a little bit about you.
1: Yes, uh, I'll try to give you uh, an abbreviated version. Uh, (laughs) You probably already realize that I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. and um, by the time I was off to college, um, I I no longer considered myself a Roman Catholic, and I was really pretty much on a, on a journey, on a search. Yeah. Um, I had the good fortune when I was a junior uh, in college to mm-hmm. take a course by a Lutheran minister, and uh, the course was entitled Workshop in the New Testament. Hmm. And um, uh, sorry to say, but I hadn't even read the New Testament by that wow. time. So, yeah, yeah, that's kind of amazing. Um, So I got the New Testament under my belt, uh, so to speak, and really saw some wonderful things there that I didn't know about before. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that although uh, Roman Catholicism would be in my past, that Christ would be in my future. Um, And so uh, I was, you know earnestly seeking um and fellowshipping and i went back to brooklyn to my parents house after i had graduated college and i had the good fortune to meet a retired free methodist minister okay i was 22 years old at the time he was 69 wow and uh we had fellowship together and he introduced me to John Wesley's 52 Standard Sermons, okay. uh, which I read at the time. Uh, the Bible in one hand, Wesley's sermons in the other. Wow. And I saw a whole new world <laughs> that I was not introduced to before, not even in the course uh, workshop in the New Testament. And so I was um, intrigued. I was excited um, and it was through reading uh, Wesleyan Scripture that uh, a few months afterwards I had a powerful evangelical conversion, mm-hmm. and my testimony was very clear yeah. uh, that Jesus Christ um, was a real Redeemer. Uh, he is who He says He is, um, and He <clears throat> set me free from the the guilt and power of sin Amen. and um I was a child of God, and I knew it. <laughs> Amen. So,
2: yeah, it's, it's amazing. So you, you, the early days of your discipleship, and even these, this point before your a conversion, it was through reading Wesley and Scripture, and this and dealing with this free Methodist minister. Is that right?
1: Yes, I think that was an important part of my journey. There was also a Bible study across the street,
3: Mm -hmm. and
1: the people in that Bible study, it was led by a young married couple, they were probably in their early 30s, and um, their pastor was an Asbury graduate.
3: Um,
1: You have to understand that, uh, you know, coming to Brooklyn, especially having taken that course by a Lutheran minister, I was high on the Lutheran tradition, and I actually thought that I would go to a Lutheran seminary. Um, yeah, I actually applied to Hamma, Hama School of Theology in Ohio.
3: Okay.
1: Uh, I don't believe it exists anymore. I think they folded it into another institution, uh, but they lost my application, and in the interim, uh, Asbury happened. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so I read Wesley Sermons and was introduced uh, of materials about Asbury Seminary and so I forgot about Hama and headed towards Asbury.
2: So, so when you went to Asbury were you did you have in mind going into uh, pastoral ministry or, or did you have scholarship on your mind even at that point?
1: I, I initially um, entered Asbury thinking I would be a pastor mm-hmm. um, and so it wasn't until uh, the first semester of my second year in seminary. I realized the call uh, to be a professor, to be a teacher, mm. um, and I never looked back.
3: <laughs>
1: wow. uh, once uh, I received that call in my midler year in seminary, I never looked back, and I just arranged my life to uh, achieve that goal. So, and I have no regrets. I very, very much enjoy being a professor. I was a professor of religion and philosophy at. Methodist College and a University, which is in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Okay, I did that for eleven years, um, and then I came to Asbury Theological Seminary uh, in nineteen ninety five, and I've been there ever since.
2: Wow! So you now you also did you do your PhD at Drew?
1: Yes, I, I did my PhD at Drew. I studied with Tom Odin. Okay. Uh, yeah. With Russ Ritchie and a number of other people, uh, so yes, I had, uh, you know, an interesting theological education when I was at Drew. Yeah, it, it's
2: amazing. We've had others on on the podcast, and um, even people in the Salvation Army have interacted with uh, students of Thomas Oden before too. There's just several people in our like in his, you know, you often talk about like a football coaching tree, like you have the Belichick tree or the Andy Reid tree. Right, there's like right. the Thomas Oden tree and it's a fruitful tree. Yeah. It seems like I, I know that you have even recently had some things, uh, subtle critiques of his, um, ecclesiology. Maybe we can get into that later, but still, I mean, he was, um, somebody who has led to, uh, like his, his students have done a, a lot of wonderful work on Wesley, but just for the church as a whole. Well, tell me a little bit about that, his influence on you. That-
1: Yeah, that's true. No, that's true. And, you know, Tom Oden, a tremendous champion uh, for orthodoxy, uh, for, you know, the proper Christian faith, uh, doctrinally speaking, in a world of, you know, shifting theological change. And so um, his, uh, you know, his teaching, his life, his witness, his work, uh, you know, is is appreciated. All of that is appreciated by many, many people.
2: So yes. So one of the reasons that we're interested in having you you come on, a lot of our audience is connected to the Salvation Army. Maybe they they might not see the Salvation Army as their church home. They could be involved um, through the Salvation Army ministries as an advisory board member, as a staff member. But we have a significant portion of our our listeners are uh, soldiers and officers in the Salvation Army. And it's easy for the Salvation Army to think that we are just – all by ourselves we're so distinct we wear uniforms we have this unique name we have ranks and all right. this sort of thing but william booth just didn't didn't pop onto the scene in london's east end in 1865 out of nowhere he has a theological right. background and that background was was drenched in methodism and particularly um his love of wesley like he he uh, cut his teeth so to speak understanding Wesley's movement, and he even said at one point um, in a Methodist article, he said, to me, there was one God, and John Wesley was his prophet. I mean, <laughs> that was <the> a way- <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's, that's interesting. I, I hadn't known that about William Booth, that
2: he had written that, said that. And, and um, just in to set the set stage a little bit, too, like, so, I don't have to tell you this, but after, uh, after Wesley died, you know, Methodism broke off into a variety of movements in in um, england and the methodist new connection was the branch of methodism that where where william booth was saved and um and served first ever so the methodist new connection um polity and doctrine was what he basically just transported into the salvation army and um, just basically used the exact same language so salvation army um doctrine Theology and even structure at the beginning was very right. closely resembling um, Wesley. And he and, and, and uh, just one more introductory word that uh, William Booth saw himself not just as a theological heir, but also yeah. as an organizational heir um, to Wesley. Yeah. Um, but yeah. d- so you told us a little bit of how. You got into um studying wesley did you did you decide early on even in seminary, that that would be the it, take up the bulk of your scholarship or what led you to get to study wesley as much as you have
1: i I know uh that when I was studying at Asbury, I really doubled up on uh theology and historical theology and church history mm-hmm. um because i'm fascinated uh, by the history of the church. And so after I graduated Asbury, before I did my doctoral program at Drew, I did a THM at Princeton Seminary. Okay. Um, and the THM, I basically took eight courses in church history. So I, you know, really filled out my lacuna, so to speak. Okay. And that, you know, gave me a good background uh, in which to draw from when I went on to doctoral studies at, at Drew. So, um, naturally, the study of John Wesley is a species of historical theology, right. because he's an 18th-century figure, uh, and Wesley's theology is very contextualized, very contextualized, because he was a practical as opposed to a systematic theologian.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Wesley's understanding of theology, um, and I think salvationists would probably appreciate this, um, Theology was in service to the Church in mission, Mm -hmm. and so you have a very activist Church, a Church in mission. Uh, Practical theology serves the Church as it is in mission. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, when you look at, for example, John Wesley's sermons, uh, the many sermons that he had written, um, they have this larger goal, this larger orientation and purpose, if you will.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, so, the the big themes of Wesley. You, I mean, there's there have been a before you came onto the scholarly scene, there have been a fair amount written about uh, Wesley. You had Albert Outler, and you had all these uh, generations of people who came ahead. But you've kind of carved out some distinct niches and. Uh, within Wesleyan studies that I think are interesting. And, and I think without saying it, like, I don't know quite the exact words to use, but even distinguishing some, um, it, places where you think scholars have made mistakes in interpreting Wesley, but where do you think some of those traditional areas are where, um, scholars or even popular writers have misunderstood Wesley?
1: Yeah. Um, this is, this is a very, very good question. Um, I can, I'm going to answer this in two ways. Um, the first way is in terms of the subsequent traditions, which you have already been talking about, that who have followed Wesley. I, I think there is a problem uh, with some of the subsequent traditions, especially uh, in terms of 19th century Americana, if you will, mm. um, that they did not pick up all the careful nuances that Wesley had in his theology, uh, and therefore, when they attempted to bring forth Wesley's theology... Um, it tended to be unbalanced in, in some important ways. Hmm. Um, one of the basic confusions that I often run against, run up against, and I see it even with students who come out of these traditions, is that these traditions have confused what Wesley means by the new birth
3: hmm. uh,
1: with entire sanctification. And so they don't have the kind of clarity that wesley had in his own theology and and it took wesley time to get there because wesley still had some things confused in his own mind even in 1738 though he had a powerful conversion experience at aldersgate
3: right he
1: still had to think through and parse out if you will his doctrine of assurance christian assurance um the direct witness of the holy spirit and how that relates to justification and the new birth And then he also had to parse out um, more carefully his doctrine of sin. In other words, uh, when we're justified, what are we free from in terms of sin? And and what's the case in terms of the new birth? And then what's the case in terms of entire sanctification? And Wesley writes two sermons later on, actually this is in the 1760s, on sin and believers, and on the repentance of believers, and there he clearly distinguishes things um, very carefully. So he'll talk about the guilt being one thing, uh, and the power yet another, that believers are delivered from the guilt and power of sin we allow, that they are delivered from the being of it we deny. And by that statement, what Wesley is saying is that a justified person, someone who has received the forgiveness of sins that are past, they are free from the guilt of sin. Uh, Someone who is born of God, a child of God who has experienced the new birth, uh, is free from its power or dominion, Uh, but it is not until one's heart is purified by grace through faith that one is free from the being of sin, uh, even the carnal nature. Um, And so it's the distinction between guilt, power, and being, and we can express that theologically in terms of justification, regeneration, and entire sanctification. And I find that the subsequent tradition lacks, in some places, the kind of clarity that Wesley himself eventually came to in his own published sermons.
2: The, the, the that idea would be the,
1: one that would be
2: one okay Can but I fa- th- oh. there
1: isn't there is another there is another okay. uh, yeah and and you because I know you're a student of Wesley and I know you have read both the primary sources and the secondary sources yeah. that there is another mistake and it's ongoing i see it i see it around me all the time I see it being taught all the time and it is not. Uh, not presenting Wesley's theology very accurately. And that is that people are bringing forward, this is scholars, pastors, leaders in the Church, they're bringing forward a part of Wesley Mm
3: -hmm. as
1: if it were the whole, and that's the problem. It's not that what they're bringing forward is not a part of Wesley's theology, it is. And and I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about here. They'll talk about that grace is cooperative, that according to Wesley, in his theology, grace is cooperative. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Um, And indeed, Wesley wrote the sermon on working out our own salvation, and he said it, he wrote in that sermon, God works, therefore you can work, God works, therefore you must work. Mm -hmm. And so, cooperative grace, or what some people call responsible grace, is very much a part of Wesley's theology. No one's denying that. The problem is, if you bring that forward as if it is the whole of Wesley's theology, then we have difficulties, we have problems. Because Wesley not only acknowledged co grace, which is a part of the broader Catholic tradition, but he also underscored in the way that Reformers did, like Luther, like Calvin, uh, free grace, the work of God alone. Uh, free grace, where something is a sheer, utter gift, and therefore to be received by grace through faith alone. Uh, this is what is being downplayed today. And so you had mentioned Albert Outler earlier, and I agree with you. Albert Outler, in my estimation, was one of, was the preeminent light of the 20th century in Wesley's studies, wow. yeah. uh, without equal. Um, and he... Uh, basically argue that Wesley's theology is a conjunctive theology, and he is correct in that. And Wesley's theology is conjunctive, meaning both and, not either or. Mm -hmm. It's both and, not either or. So it's both cooperative grace and free grace, and it's the tension of that held together which is most descriptive of Wesley's theological posture. So... Those are the two main errors I see in Wesley's studies today.
2: And, and you mentioned uh, responsible grace, of course, like that's Randy Maddox is the theme of his book as well. You know, this is this. Do you feel like this is the um, about, just on the cooperative side? Um, the, the, this, where, what is the danger? I mean, there's a danger in missing the big picture of Wesley, certainly. But what
1: is... Exactly, the, the, exactly.
2: The, but but there, there's probably a practical spiritual danger to this as well. What, what would that be? The
1: practical uh, spiritual danger is you are missing uh, what the work of God alone can do.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, uh, for example, let me quote Wesley here. I can quote him from memory. Uh, he's talking about a person... A man or a woman, on their way to entire sanctification. And what Wesley says, and he writes this in the very last part of his sermon, uh, The Scripture Way of Salvation, mm-hmm. um, he's talking about a person on the way to entire sanctification, and this is what, this is what he writes. Uh, if you think you must be or do something else first, then you are expecting it by works even unto this day. Mm. But if it is by the grace of God, Expect it as you are Amen. and expect it now. Hmm. And so, what Wesley's referring to there, the it is, of course, entire sanctification. And Wesley is saying this is a sheer, utter gift. And since it is a gift, it can be received by grace through faith alone now.
3: Mm-hmm. The
1: nowness highlights not simply chronology or, or temporal considerations, but it highlights. That God is the principal actor here, yes. that the grace operative is not cooperative grace, but free grace, and this is a sheer, utter gift, and therefore it can be received now. We don't have to be or do something else first, because Amen. that would be to understand it by works. Yes. Um, the very practical import of that, if people are utterly in the model of co grace. You know, yes. God works, therefore you can work, God works, therefore you must work. They're going on in their Christian life, and and they're just waiting, waiting, waiting uh, for entire sanctification. They think it's simply the last step right. of, of divine human cooperation, not realizing that it is a species of free grace, not co grace.
2: Amen. It's something available, you know, now.
1: Yes available now because it is a gift but we're so offended by the giftedness of it we think unless we have our hand in it unless somehow we can manage it it won't happen it won't get done
2: well and and there's a bit of and this goes back to your first point of the challenge of of understanding the the guilt the power and being of sin uh, the similar idea with a pessimism about the a victorious life um, and right. i think that that c- comes to in the nature of of understanding th- how how we view sin could you give i know this could this could be a whole course and it certainly has been books but uh, help me understand wesley's view of sin uh, i've I always end yes. up quoting him just like a um a willful transgression to a known law of god but i'd love to hear you talk about yes. that for a second and mm-hmm.
1: yes i think i think you're correct in focusing on this issue of sin mm-hmm. and and how Wesley defines sin, because uh, we run the danger, and I'm thinking of salvationists as, as well acquainted with the Wesleyan tradition, that we run the risk of talking past other theological traditions. I'm thinking of Calvinists, for example, right. uh, because they have different understandings of sin. Right. They have different understandings of sin, and so One of the first things I I, do—it's almost the very first thing I do in any Wesley course I teach—and I believe when I taught the theology of John Wesley among the Salvationists in a in a January not too long ago, uh, I I did the same thing. I stressed what Wesley meant by sin at the outset, and you've said it correctly uh, that nothing is sin, strictly speaking, Wesley writes, but a willful violation of a known law of God. Um, at first glance, that might seem, you know, rather simplistic, but actually, when you start to examine it, uh, Wesley's saying a number of things simultaneously. Um, he's first of all saying that there is sin, properly speaking, yes, and there is sin, improperly right. speaking. And so sin, properly speaking, would be a willful mm-hmm. violation of a known law. And so, for example, you know, if I were working at a store and I short-changed somebody and it was by accident, um, uh, you know, the question, has sin occurred? And the answer is no. Mm-hmm. But if I did it intentionally, willfully, then sin has occurred. And so when Wesley is talking about Uh, sin is a willful violation of the known law of God. Uh, He's not talking about uh, performance here, because we may be weak in judgment uh, and these sorts of things, and sin has not occurred, uh, properly speaking. Let's let's look at it a different way. Uh, When we look at the Old Testament, much of the Levitical sacrifices were for unwitting sins, Mm -hmm. Uh, interestingly enough. But, and I think the reform take their definition of sin from, from the Old Testament. However, here's your problem if you do that. Uh, take a look at Romans chapter 6. Take a look at Romans chapter 8. Read the first letter of John. They're talking about a freedom. They're mm-hmm. talking about freedom from, from the power and dominion Amen. of sin. Uh, how could that be possible if sin is any violation of a known law of God, whether willful or right. not? You know, if you define sin that way, who could be so free? Because you're talking, you're talking about really a, a perfection of performance. Right, right. That you have perfect knowledge, that you don't have ignorance, that you don't make mistakes, that you don't make errors of judgment, or all of that. And that is not what uh, First John is talking about. And so I think Wesley's definition of sin. Uh, is in harmony with the understanding of the first letter of John, and makes perfect sense of it, we can be free of sin so understood. Um, and then also in terms of Romans 6-8, uh, through eight, uh, uh, see, I think the danger in defining sin the other way, in yeah. other words, any violation right, of an right. known law of God, is then you're going to teach your congregations, oh, we're all sinners, we sin and thought, word, and deed every day. Right. We can't escape from this. We can't get out. And you're going to be preaching pessimism, right. and people are going to be living below the graces for which Christ died.
2: Amen. Oh, man. People who know me um, and are listening to this podcast know that I'm just like a kid in a candy shop right now. Hearing you say all this, uh, it's just it, I have a big smile on my face because this, this is a part of what gives I mean, this understanding of what God's doing in the world and what He does in the life of a believer is what inspires me to do my anything every day. And one of the key things that God used in my life was your book, um, The Evangelical Moment. That came out just as I was finishing seminary. And um, you know, you, there's still a point where, you've, well, you, when you graduate seminary, you might think you know everything, and uh, but you certainly don't. That book, there's a chapter uh, that you wrote that, that was published by um, Baker Press. Um, and I, I wasn't quite sure what I was getting into when I picked it up. But then I got to this chapter talking about the same idea um, that I have. I'm sorry, I have recommended people buy the book, but I have copied it and given just that chapter out to people because I felt like this is it. This is what makes um, Wesleyan thought distinct, and this is this is true in the Salvation Army. But you have a chapter. It's called the oh the Wesleyan leavening of evangelicalism, and it I, it hits yeah. on these similar ideas that you're talking about. Um, talk to me about that. Uh, that chapter and what you feel like uh, Wesley's thought and the Wesleyan tradition can bring to the, to evangelicalism as a whole.
1: Yeah, I think um, actually a number of things, but oh, sure we've already been talking about we've already been talking about one, so I can continue along that vein. Okay, I think I think uh, we Wesleyans, and I would include Salvationists as Wesleyans. Thank you. Um, we Wesleyans um, have a ministry not simply to people outside the Church, we certainly have that, and, and Salvationists know that ministry very clearly, right. but we also have a ministry to those inside the Church, hmm. um, because just as Wesley, in his 18th century context, was dealing uh, with uh, church traditions and theological movements, uh, you know, Anglicanism and well beyond Anglicanism, that uh, for various reasons, you know, in the contextualization of theology, were no longer teaching the kind of freedom and liberty that we have as the children of God in the grace of God and in God's love, you know, that Wesley had to address that. And mm-hmm. so, the big thing, the big challenge for Wesley in his 18th century context, and it's a big word here, antinomianism. Right. Antinomianism, which basically means lawlessness. But it can be expressed in very artful and careful theology. In other words, you construct a theology. It may be well written. It may be orderly. But what that theology does, practically speaking, is to live. Pe- is to leave people. In the power and dominion of sin, Mm. and yet call them saved. And Wesley, that doesn't compute for Wesley. Mm. Uh, You know, that theology must be challenged, it must be corrected in light of Scripture, uh, so that people can be led into the enormous freedom that we have by grace through faith in Jesus Christ.
2: And and that that was actually, the chapter that brought me back to the key sermon that you mentioned on sin and believers. Um, I, you know, I yeah. found it in your footnotes there and I felt like yeah. that, that was a helpful piece for me just to grasp what, what we're talking about and how, how that, that isn't a part of, of even, even in some Wesleyan traditions, not emphasizing power over power over sin, or the the being of sin. Now, give me a second here, because like that's a little hard to grasp. Because often we see sin as something that we do, um but the the words the being of sin. What? Give me a okay, little more clarity let there. Me-
1: yeah, let me, let me open this up for you in a number of ways, and we'll continue the comparison we're doing be- with uh, the Wesleyan tradition and the Wesleyan leavening of evangelicalism.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, evangelicals, broadly speaking, are great at leading people to Christ, of bringing people into the Church, but the problem is they don't know what to do with them once they get there. And that's because they're simply focused on justification and regeneration, and they don't realize that the sinner's need is twofold. Uh, And so we can express the need of the sinner, first of all, in terms of actual sins, plural. Yes. That is, the sins of omission and commission, both inward and outward, that we commit, Mm -hmm. okay, and for which we seek forgiveness and for which we seek freedom from okay that's a whole ball of wax and and you know we have to look at that but that's not the entirety of the sinner's problem because here's 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 the difficulty let's say okay you have sons and daughters daughters of God in church, okay? Uh, The carnal nature remains, inbred sin remains, what Wesley calls the being. That corrupt nature can be the occasion of temptation down the road, Mm -hmm. a propensity towards pride, a propensity towards lust. It remains, but it does not reign, okay? And so we need to talk about Christian growth and discipleship in terms, uh, in one sense at least, uh, in terms of confronting our own carnal nature, that too is sin, which yet remains even in a child of God, okay? Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and so when we talk about the cleansing of inbred sin singular, to distinguish it from actual sins plural, we're now talking about a second work of grace, which is, of course, entire sanctification. And so the twofoldness of Wesley's theology, it can be expressed in terms of the twofold need of the sinner, in terms of the forgiveness of actual sins, plural,
3: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and then the cleansing of inbred sin, singular. Yes. And those correspond to the two foci of the Wesleyan order of salvation, the order of salutis, justification and regeneration on the one hand, mm-hmm. entire sanctification on the other.
2: Well, I, I think one of the interesting things, too, in, if, if I had to. Uh, we're looking at your kind of the big, bigger book on John Wesley's, John Wesley's theology as a whole. I mean, I know you have other, like b- more biographical theological journeys through. You have a study of the fifty-two sermons. I mean, there, there's several. Um, of the, your book, "The Scripture Way of Salvation," those those are all helpful. But I think kind of in your the the larger piece that you've done on the theology, you you have a subtitle holy love in the shape of grace holy love in the shape of grace and my sense is and in reading that book is like that's kind of the image that you take that unites the totality of wesley um could you talk about those two uh i know of course you did and it's a yeah. 500 page book so i under 400 page book so yeah <laughs> but yeah. i would love to hear you
1: actually answer. you know actually um <clears throat> Uh, Professor Joel Green, when he was the provost yeah, at I was Asbury there. Seminary, he, yeah, he, he contacted me, um, and he said, uh, Ken, how would you summarize Wesley's theology in as few words as possible? Huh. And I thought about it, and then I got back to him, and I said, uh, I can do it in three words. Um, holiness and grace. Hmm. Holiness and grace. And, and notice that, going back to Albert Outler, this represents a conjunction. Right. This represents a conjunction, holiness and grace. And then I want to take each one of those words, holiness, I, w- I want to break it out into a conjunction, and I want to break out grace into a conjunction, and then I think you have the balance of Wesley's entire theology. Holiness is broken out into holy love.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Not just love not just holiness because if we simply talk about love then we're going to probably engage in some sort of sentimentality we're going to fill in love with with our own content what we like what we think is good um, and that may it's not be in maybe. accordance with the divine will that's right so um it needs the qualifier holy, not talking about just any love. The kind of love that's demonstrated at Calvary is holy love. It's humble, sacrificial love. It has lots of attributes and characteristics and traits we're not talking about just any kind of love when we say love in a christian context and indeed that's why we have so much difficulty today because so many people are talking about love 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 in the church today right. and they're just filling in the content with themselves or hmm. the favored groups in which they participate and they are not talking about holiness at all that
2: becomes really clear with human sexuality oh yeah oh yeah
1: I'll, Oh yeah, absolutely.
2: Let to, to, to me get you off track there. Keep going, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. And th- but then on the other hand, in terms of holy love, if we simply focused on holiness apart from love, then we're underscoring separation apart from communion, and then we run the risk of self righteousness. We run the risk of a dour, um, rigid understanding of the Christian life, where we're we're utterly separating from the world, um, and that's problematic too. Uh, Holiness is is important, it's valuable, it's best understood in the context of love. Love is important, but it's best understood in the context of holiness. And so it's a conjunction, it's a a tension, it's holy love. That's what Wesley's all about. That's the first part. So holiness, we broke out into holy love, now grace Because I said the three words are holiness and grace, grace can be broken out also into conjunction, and this relates to the conversation we were having earlier when I talked about making a corrective of what's happening out there in in Wesleyan theology land. Um, (laughs) It's cooperant grace and free grace. It's both and. Mm -hmm. It's, or if you want to express it another way, it's responsible grace and free grace. Amen. Um, I mean, if you read uh, Randy Maddox's book, Responsible Grace, check how many references there are to free grace. There are very few, hmm. very few. And free grace is at the heart of John Wesley's theology. It's held in tension with cooperant grace. Uh, and so it's the conjunction of cooperant and free grace. So if you talk about holy love on the one hand, and cooperative and free grace, you basically have described uh, Wesley's practical theology.
2: Awesome. Well, I think that is a great, and I just recommend folks to take a look at the the book that I alluded to, Theology of John Wesley, published by Abingdon, and that's where Dr. Collins uh, stretches that idea out even further um, in a more systematic way. This episode of Captain's Corner is brought to you by an anonymous donor who loves the ministry of the Salvation Army and RegisterToRing.com. Register ring is the simple way to sign up to ring bells at the Salvation Army. Ringing bells is a cherished holiday tradition, and money raised goes directly to help people in need in your community. To volunteer to ring in your community this holiday season, go to RegisterToRing.com to sign up today. You can sign up as an individual or a group. Just go to register to ringcom And let me just add that in Tampa, this has been a blessing to have Register to Ring in place. We've had a great expansion of our volunteer efforts because of Register to Ring. So check that out today. And our thanks to these sponsors for their help in producing Captain's Corner. I want to pivot here. One thing I was interested in, I looked to see like what you're doing lately um and i found that in the i don't know if it's published yet but an upcoming or the most recent edition of the wesleyan theological journal your article there piqued my interest i i, I was honestly surprised particularly as a, a student of thomas odin i know probably one of his he would probably be see see as a high honor for somebody to disagree with him but i get from the title. That, there is, that you are offering—now, I know we're making a shift here away from Wesley to a certain extent. Um, you're offering maybe a corrective or pointing out what you might see as a weak area in Thomas owen's work altogether in his ecclesiology. And I would I would love to—I know that I, I, with every question I've asked, you could point me to something you've written on the subject, so <laughs> I recognize that. But uh, could you describe for me a thesis of that article and where you're going with— um, with uh, the it may, Maybe I'm wrong if it's a subtle critique of Oden. Yeah, Odin.
1: The, the name of the article uh, that Captain Miller is referring to here is Paleo-Orthodoxy and the Diminishment of Theological Method, um, a Critical Examination of the Theology of Thomas C. Oden, uh, which is going to be published in the next edition, which should be out within a month of the Wesleyan Theological Journal. And let me start out by saying that uh, I am very appreciative of the work of Thomas Mm -hmm. Oden and his contribution. I want to start off and say that. Um, I think one of his greatest achievements is the ancient Christian commentary series uh, and the labor he put into that. It's just a wonderful gift to the Church. It is. And I noticed noticed that there's now going to be, and it's in production already, a Reformation. Yes, I've (laughs) seen that, yeah. Yes, a Reformation commentary on scripture. So not just the early church fathers, but also the Reformation greats like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, etc. Uh so and I, I applaud that as well. Um my main motivation in writing uh this piece, um was because I'm trying to help the Wesleyan tradition, the broader Wesleyan tradition, go forward theologically. Okay. And I've heard so many uh, people describe Odin's classic Christianity, well, it even has it uh, uh, in its title, Uh, that it is a systematic that it is a systematic theology Hmm. uh it says that at the top it says a systematic theology classic christianity and and i argue in this piece no it's not actually systematic theology it's not uh because what systematic theology? well let me tell you what odin does and then then you should realize why it's not systematic theology um Odin, uh, if you're familiar with his work, he privileges yeah. the first the first millennium, Definitely. the first thousand years.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, and so, you know, Jerome and Augustine and John of Damascus and others, they get to do theology, you know, influenced right. by their own cultures and uh, etc. But it basically stops somewhere <laughs> in the year 1000. Huh. Um, and he's got this whole theme going on that not only critiques modernity, but that greatly values uh, the past. Right. And the further past you go, uh, the more greatly it is valued. Now, right, right. In some sense, in some That's sense, a part of his story, be... too, you
2: know, his own conversion. I mean, right. when you, when you, and, and I look at his three volumes, the one that you're alluding to, you know, when you read through it, yep. you feel like it's almost like yep. a, a reference, like— this is this is how you get to from sovereignty. This is how you look to early church fathers about that, and they just—it's wonderful for that resource, but not what I hear you saying is maybe not as much as a systematic theology. Sorry to interrupt you there. But yeah. yeah,
1: no, no, that's fine. Uh, you're filling things out. For example, I can I can illustrate what what we're both talking about here. If if someone had classic Christianity, if they would turn to, it's actually in the preface it 's x x i i i so it's like 23, it 's like twenty three but you know it 's one of those yeah, x, yeah. x x i i i it 's still a preface and what odin has there it 's a pyramid of sources, and the pyramid of sources is actually a clue. Uh, to his theological method, mm. um, and it's also has embedded within it a number of value judgments, which may be surprising uh, to some of his uh, fans. For example, uh, naturally at the base of the pyramid, which is the greatest area, there'll be Scripture. Okay, Mm -hmm. we, you know, no problem there. Then moving up from that would be the anti-Nicene, Post Nicene Fathers, Mm -hmm. lesser area, but still, but still, you know, considerable. Then the medieval sources. Um, and then after that, and here's where we're getting into trouble now, Reformation writers, and then I presume, although he doesn't list it specifically, the Wesleyan revival of the 18th century, and then the smallest place at the top would be modern interpreters. Hmm. Uh, here's the problem with this pyramid of sources, that uh, the Middle Ages become more important than the Reformation hmm. or the Wesleyan revival, and I disagree with that. Interesting. Uh, you know. At, and and that's part of my own journey. Remember now, I come out of Roman Catholicism. I know Roman Catholicism very well. As a matter of fact, Jerry Walls and I wrote a book recently, yes. Roman but not Catholic.
2: I love it. What yep. remains
1: at stake 500 years after the Reformation. So I know the Roman paradigm. I, I understand that. And I have much to critique in terms of the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. I do as a Protestant and, and it needs critiquing. But in Odin's scheme, because older is always greater, he invariably ends up uh overestimating the Middle Ages and preferring it to the Reformation and the Wesleyan revival. I, I can't accept that. <laughs> I can't accept that. Uh in terms of those kinds of value judgments. Um I also think it's problematic because when we think of systematic theology, we think of basically forging a conversation between the genius of the Christian faith, uh, informed by revelation and reason, uh, in terms of a larger conversation with all of human knowledge. I mean, it's it's a, it's a an uh, ambitious enterprise that, that you engage in, in systematic theology. And people like Karl Barth uh, and Emma Bruner, earlier theologians of the 20th century, they did that kind of thing. They, mm-hmm. they engaged that broader enterprise. Um, but that's not what Odin is doing. What Odin is doing, he is approaching things thematically, from the doctrine of God to eschatology. And basically, under each heading, he's giving us what the early church thought about this. Mm-hmm. You know, what the what the oftentimes it's people prior to the fifth century what they thought about this. Well, that's very interesting, and I certainly want to read it. I'm reading Odin's book for the third time now. I'm going through it again because mm-hmm. I read it on Kindle twice and lost it twice oh. in my notes. So I'm I'm reading it in the hardcover now, so I don't lose any notes. Um, but it's not even historical theology, and Odin tells us that, hmm. because he says he's not interested. He's not interested in the slow development of doctrines over time. For example, the doctrine of justification, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not interested in that. So what do we have here in terms of what Odin is doing? Well, it's not systematic theology, uh, because you have to go beyond the first uh, millennium to uh, address the problems of today in the 20th 21st century in a systematic theology, and I don't see that Odin is seriously engaging that. It's not historical theology because Odin says he's not interested in the historical development and slow growth and of development over time of doctrines. He says he's not interested in that. What this is then, uh, and that's this is what I conclude at the article at the end of the article. It's dogmatic theology. In other words, it is the official teaching of the public church during a period of time, and it's being brought forward into the 21st century for what dialogue possibilities are there. But it's not systematic theology, and I want my Wesleyan brothers and sisters to know it's not, so that they can actually go ahead and do real systematic theology.
2: Wow. Can you point to a systematic theology in the Wesleyan tradition? Because, of course, it's a three-volume Odin Um, work that, you know, is used at most, I mean, it's used at Asbury, uh, um, I think, at Wesley as well. Um, Yeah, yeah. well, can you point to any?
1: We have great uh, examples in the past, people like Pope, uh, people like Watson, uh, uh, Nudson, and others uh, Mm -hmm. who did systematic theology uh, in the Wesleyan Methodist tradition, but in terms of the contemporary scene, Um, I wouldn't view Odin's work as a species of systematic theology, so it's not going to count there. Um, We tend to be weak in this field. Uh, We do. Mm. We produce good biblical scholars, we produce some historical theologians uh, and church historians, but in terms of, you know, world-class you know broader conversation really engaging it systematic theology uh we've left that to the reformed we've left it to roman catholics to do
3: Hmm.
2: wow well that's a—I mean that's a a call that you're making here it's like almost a prophetic call <laughs> yeah, for the so. Muslim movement and it's an article i'm, like, I'm yeah. excited to get my hands on it a little i know i know that we don't have too much time i just um and too much more time and you've been very generous to give us what you have um what could you say and that this is like taking this uh Uh, a totally different type of question here, but what's God doing in your life these days, Dr. Collins? And, you know, um, what do you see happening just in your regular day-to-day life of where you see the Spirit um, sanctifying you?
1: Yeah, um, I see uh, a movement into deeper humility, Hmm. deeper lowliness, um, uh, greater self-knowledge and understanding in light of God's grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see that, um, you know, just personally in terms of that. So those are good things. Those are good things, yes. are good things. Uh, you know, good growth and grace. Uh, in terms of the context in which we are right now, um, uh, I think we're in a very difficult uh, place in the Church right now, because What is happening uh, is that the narrative of the world, so to speak, uh, is displacing the narrative of the Church, Mm. sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly, Mm. and that displacement has the effect of... uh, carbon monoxide displacing oxygen such that the patient may die. Wow. Um, and so I think what's happening right now, and this is dear to my heart because I, I try to understand what's going on in American culture. I read pretty broadly and I, and I have a good philosophical background in order to think through uh, intellectual currents, that sort of thing. And, and I think what's going on right now um, is that some in the Church have taken on the kind of identity politics that's playing out in our culture, and they're bringing it into the Church and slapping the name of Jesus on top of it Hmm. uh, as if there aren't going to be any problems. Hmm. And this, Hmm. I think, uh, has to be uh, you know, this has to be opposed. It has to first be brought to light. It has to be opposed, because identity politics is is not the greatest story that has ever been told or that could ever be told. I mean, that's the gospel. But it's masquerading as the gospel, uh, and it's not. Uh, identity politics is a divisive narrative. Uh, it divides people up into groups. Um, it creates antagonisms between the various groups. It exacerbates the antagonisms and multiplies them exponentially uh, in terms of intersectionality, things like that. Uh, and this narrative is now in the church. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we have to, we need the church's theologians to point this out and to say, hey, this is not our story. Uh, what's going on in terms of race, gender, and how they're being used in our culture? Um, are being used in very divisive ways, not in ways of reconciliation, right. you see. Uh, I much prefer the writings of Martin Luther King, Jr. Uh, to the writings of contemporary writers. Uh, uh, Tahisi Coates, in his book that he wrote, uh, very divisive, uh, not even aiming at reconciliation. I'm interested in reconciliation. I'm interested in um, people who have problems with one another, even groups, uh, thinking through what will it take so that we become a community, mm-hmm. so that there is genuine reconciliation. And I don't see that that's happening right now. I see I see groups throwing brickbats at yeah. each other, yeah. uh, creating walls, not listening to each other, cutting people off, mm-hmm. uh, 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 caricaturing people, uh, Name calling, slander, character assassination—all of this—and and some of this is working its way even into the church, and it's dreadful.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, it's
2: dreadful. And I know you've and many people might not know this about you, and I just came upon it by accident. I found in ministry probably about ten years ago the Institute for Religion and Democracy to be extremely helpful um, to me in parsing out. A biblical and theological way to understand the world and politics and war. Um, And when I was on that, when I just was, when I found them to be this great resource, I looked into it and I saw you were on the board of that group. Uh, Yes.
1: Yeah, that's true. I am on uh, the Institute of Religion and Democracy. Um, Mark Twain is really helpful to me.
2: Um, I find his. Yeah, Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, its founding document was actually crafted by Richard yes. John Newhouse. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And and when I was invited to become a part of the board of the Institute of Religion and Democracy, and I take such invitations very seriously. I mean I I looked at this group I, I knew the group before, but I took a very hard look at it. And when I read the founding document by Richard John Newhouse, which is up there on the web uh, that put me over the top, and I realized that, yes, uh, we are kindred spirits here, because what what Newhouse said in that document uh, is that uh, Christians mm-hmm. can differ in their conceptions of justice and social justice, and, and you know, still partake at the communion table, in, in effect. In other words, that we shouldn't let our political differences become decisive, that we have a greater area of communion and commonality in our Christian faith, uh, and that we may differ in terms of social policies, things like that, conceptions of justice, but uh, our Christian faith is what is in common between us. And uh, once I read that, then I realized, you know, this is for me, because that's what I was trying to say in power, politics, and the fragmentation of evangelicalism. basically that... And that's
2: a book that uh, you wrote probably, I think, probably about 10 years ago or so? Um, that yeah, yeah. That,
1: yeah, it was during the Obama administration I wrote that book, and um, what I saw in evangelicalism is that I saw both the evangelical left looking down upon the evangelical right and the evangelical right looking upon right. the evangelical left, and they forgot their common evangelicalism. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, I tried to put forward a thesis that said, "Our Christian evangelical faith is more important yes. it's what unites us, uh not our particular brand of politics um and how we view social policy because we're going to differ there yeah uh, my reason's not going to be the same as your reason. My convictions in those may be different from yours in terms of policies how to how to serve the poor, how to minister to the poor effectively. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, yeah, no, this is a Those good Those things thing. are all
2: really important. I mean, in, in the kind of in the Salvation Army's real world of what, you know, I'm, I'm doing a fair amount of my time is thinking about how to influence um, even government uh, policies with how we serve the poor and how we empower people. To yep. step out of poverty, yep. those are all a um, really important piece. Well, I, would, I encourage my you know people yep. listening to check those that book out and and, and, and Dr. Tom, not only his work on um, Wesley, but some of these pieces that deal with these things we've talked about here recently. I've always been curious. Uh, what church? What type of church do you go to? What denomination are you part of? Um,
1: uh, United United Methodist Church. Okay. Uh, I I am a very active member at St. Luke United Methodist Church, which is in Lexington, Kentucky, okay. and I'm currently teaching uh, introduction to Wesleyan theology uh, in Sunday school, so okay. I'm doing that uh, week in and week out. Um, I will soon, I'm going out to the West Coast uh, in about a week or so, and, and I'm going to do some taping out there, and then I'm going to do finish the taping in early December, but what I'm going to do I'm going to put on a global platform, and it's free. It's free to use. Uh, a course introduction to Wesleyan theology, okay. uh, from the doctrine of God all the way to eschatology, um, and it's going to be up on that global platform soon. Uh, we're we're putting it together now. Um, we'll do the actual taping in a few weeks, um, and that way. Uh, People who are interested in Wesleyan theology can, you know, sit down at their computer and they can listen to lectures uh, on the doctrine of God or Christology or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and hear it from a Wesleyan perspective. Um, Most of the theologies out there are Reformed. They're Reformed theologies. uh, So we need some Wesleyan voices out there.
2: Is that being done with a publisher or is it just something you're doing by yourself?
1: Uh, no, this is actually done. I don't know if you're familiar with biblicaltraining.org. You can go to the website. Okay. Uh, this is a whole phenomenon in and of itself. Uh, this is an important group that publishes uh, courses uh, globally. Huh. They are free, uh, open source, open source courses in yeah. order to uh, help the church. In order to help the church. So, you, if you went to biblicaltraining.org, you'll see. Uh, what's there? I'm soon to put my own course, Introduction to Wesleyan Theology, up there. Um, I don't know how long it will take them to get up there. Probably by the time we finish taping, it may take them a month or two, but it should be up there, you know, I, I would imagine by spring. Wonderful. Uh, maybe, so- Maybe sooner, maybe sooner. So.
2: That's great. Well, I mean, as anybody listening this can tell, that, uh, Dr. Collins has certain enthusiasm and energy about every subject that he's talking about here, and you can see why he's <laughs> good in his role. Why God called him as a midler at Asbury Theological Seminary to be a professor, and it's 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 because of um, this sort of passion and that's rooted in history and our theological tradition that um, that I I so like. Encourage people to even salvationists who, for ordination purposes and for our commissioning purposes, don't have to go to seminary to go to a place like Asbury Theological Seminary, uh, where you can you know learn from people like Dr. Collins. Dr. Collins, we just so appreciate you and in the way you've applied your gifts to your scholarly gifts so that they can be used for the church. And um, thank you for giving us time here in Captain's Corner.
3: You,
1: you know, I'd like to say this. Yeah, uh, yeah. I taught. I taught at the Salvationist headquarters a little while ago, uh, past January, um, at Theology of John Wesley, uh, and I so felt at home there and really appreciated doing that. Uh, I'm likely to do that again, okay. so there'll be that opportunity for Salvationists. But then uh, they can also come to Asbury Seminary. I I teach the Theology of John Wesley in January in a one-week intensive, so if you can get a week you know, put together a week, uh, you can study The Theology of John Wesley right there at Asbury Seminary with me in January. I'm teaching a course uh, this January, uh, Theology of John Wesley, so, yeah, there are those opportunities, and I thought I would mention them.
2: Yo, thank you. Thank you for doing it. And, you know, in one way, I think we could learn, and, and I, we certainly don't have time to talk about it now, but is that one way we're not, I think we're not really Wesleyan is in our sacramental practice. And so I think you could probably help us understand what Wesley thought in that regard, and maybe that could help us even reform within the Salvation Army so we could think about um, maybe how we could be more fully Wesleyan if we— implemented the traditional protestant sacraments
1: (laughs) that that sounds like another conversation it sounds like it sounds
2: like it yeah i
0: appreciate it well thanks so much for your time god bless you dr collins we appreciate your work okay
1: thank you thank you for inviting me and you take care
0: thank you for joining us for another episode of captain's corner next week on the podcast we have dr walt Lairmore, physician and speaker if you'd like to learn more about us, please feel free to check us out at tampasa.org and give us a follow on Twitter at SalArmyTampa. Tampa. And of course, go ahead and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks so much for joining us. See you next time.